You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, The Spirit, the Blood, and the Mission, recorded on June 18, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. If you'd open your Bibles, we're in the Gospel of Mark. So you may go ahead and open your Bibles now. We want to study the Bible and see what it says, the Gospel of Mark. If you have a smartphone, you can also look it up there. We're in chapter 3 of Mark. And before we jump in there, I want to remind everyone that we are one church that meets in four locations. And today, at every single location, um, during the service, you're being given a very important piece of communication, this harvest happenings. And what is really exciting about this piece of communication is it shows you how much activity is going on in all four campuses for the next six months. It can be overwhelming to you realize there's six months worth of stuff in there. You are eligible to participate in any campus's activity that you want to drive to. All of them are fairly close to each other, but you may also find yourself volunteering. So, and it, I want you to note it's made of something you don't see very often. Um, it's called paper. It's not, it's not an online. You can actually take this home. It's a piece of paper. There was a time not long ago when everything we read was printed on paper. And uh, the reason this is on paper as well as you can find all these events online is because we want it to lie around your house in a place where you can check it again and again. Uh, it is very important that that um, we communicate a lot in a church that's so spread out. And there's another piece of communication I want you guys to always look for. Are you ready? Drum roll, please. It's a, it's a little thing we call Big Fred's Bites. Big Fred Neal is our executive pastor, and he has a, a lot of responsibility for the communication in our church. So he will put out electronically, and we put a paper version out there. But if your email address is on with us, uh, you're electronically getting on a regular basis something called Big Fred's Bites. If you're not getting it because you saw Big Fred's name and you put him immediately in spam, unspam him. You can get rid of all his other stuff, but just read that Big Fred's Bites. It gives you a lot of stuff that's, that's business-like but important-like. And, and something I want to tell you about uh, right now is in there that's very exciting in this latest Big Fred's Bites. And, and that is... Uh, when we were, when I went to India, well, let me tell you something about India. Who here wants to know something about India? You do. Okay, well, here it is. In India, the number one language that you will learn anything at in any school is English. Because the English colonized them, and, and, and they just learn in English. So most of the people do not know English. Why is that? Most of them don't go to school. There's no such thing as a public school for you and for you and for you and for you. Just the wealthier classes can go to school. And education and upward mobility are a big desire, especially today in India. India is changing very fast. So one of the easiest ways to do ministry in India, which is only 1% Christian, is to open a school. And if you open a school and you can make it cheap enough, just a few rupees a week, you will get Hindu children and Muslim children happily brought to your door. And you can open it and say, we are a Christian school and we will teach you the gospel. And there's one particular man over there who uh, I met through some connections we have in India who he was working for a school mission like that. That school mission fired him and shut down their school. And so a lot of the kids in the community lost their school, but they loved their teacher And so he said, well, I'll teach you, but I don't have a school. 
So what he did was he's, he taught them in the yard of his small house. He has a yard as big as his house. And I would say the yard is as big as the stage I'm standing on at most. I don't even know if it's this big. And he built a school there out of tin. And there were 90 kids in that school <laughs> made out of tin. Now you can imagine that. Uh, 90 kids in 95 degree heat in a tin school and have three or four classes going on. It was a cacophony of noise. It was very hard to get anything done. This man's mission wasn't just to teach them reading, writing, and arithmetic, although he did that, but he wanted to teach them about Jesus Christ. But that school wasn't much of a school and it wasn't getting done very well. Well, through contact with, with us, me and Big Fred, because of modern uh, technology, were able to FaceTime him. Imagine that, FaceTiming some poor dude in India. Um, Some of you youngins, well, of course, of course you FaceTime him. What else would you do? But anyone over 20 or 25 or 30 would say, that is amazing that you can do that. Um, You know, the first iPhone only came out in, what, 2007? So just think about it. We're FaceTiming this guy. And me and Fred got a chance to talk to him and actually coach him a bit. Because what he wanted was to take an old piece of land that was used for almost nothing, that he picked up for almost nothing, and build a school on it. So we actually said, you can do this as a teacher. And we helped him from America to get a board of directors put together uh, of Indians and, and taught him ways to raise money among Indians. And why, why is it important that he learns to do that among Indians? So that they can continue to do good ministry without having to call someone in America. However, that said, he gets on the phone with us and he raised a bunch of money from Indians and they started to build an actual school. And he gets on the money on the phone with, with, with me and, and Fred and we'd already talked to the executive elders about what we would be willing to commit if he could raise some money. And since I am not good with monetary uh, numbers in India, <laughs> I promised them much more than the executive elders told me I could promise them. So we gave them over $5,000 of your money. <laughs> so, now, that's, if you go look in Big Fred's Bites, there's a link, and you've got to click the link, and you'll see the pictures. And I know they're just pictures. It's much easier if you've stood there with them, as I did, and see the real people. But these are real human souls. And you will see, they've got the whole first floor of this school done. It has several classrooms. There's real cement. And they can actually continue to build up as the school grows. From Catanning, Pennsylvania. From Freeport, Pennsylvania. From Petrolia Valley, Pennsylvania. And from Indiana, Pennsylvania. Hundreds and hundreds of kids are going to hear the gospel. And the way this school runs it, they also do evangelism work with all the parents. And they're happy to bring their Hindu children in to learn the gospel. This is happening because our goal is to create a healthy church. If you don't have a healthy church, you don't have anyone giving money to missions, and you don't have missionaries who think mission, or or elders who think missions matters. You don't have people who go to your church with a worldview big enough to see beyond their own county. So do you see why it's so important that we, that our mission is to increase the health and size of God's church everywhere? 
We could, from Western Pennsylvania, we are reaching India. No, we're not changing the whole nation, but who knows? One of them little dudes, hello, I'm learning English, may just become the Billy Graham of their nation. <laughs> so make sure you're reading your Big Fred Bites, and if you didn't, go back and look for that one, and click on it, and look at the pictures of those people. Let's look at Mark 3, because we're going to go back to the very beginning of Jesus bringing his own ministry. We're all the way up to the third chapter, verse 20. Then he went home. Who? Jesus. And the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. Uh, Jesus has become so popular. But you've got to know just a little bit about Israel to follow this. He's doing all this ministry in the first few chapters of Mark in an area called the Galilee. You've heard of Galilee, right? The man from Galilee. Well, the man from Galilee is like saying the man from Redneckville. No kidding. Galileans were redneck. Blue-collar, working folk. All the important folks came from a couple days away down in Jerusalem. That's all the educated, smart, metropolitan people. Jesus is from Redneckville, and he's from a little gnat of a town in Redneckville. But he's becoming so popular in Redneckville, he can't even eat. Now look, I don't know how you live your life, but if anything, in a sustained way, gets between me and food... We got some serious trouble. I mean, people are pushing in on him. And I want you to put yourself back in those days before you knew, before they didn't know Jesus was going to turn out to be the savior of the world. (laughs) They didn't know he was going to be etched in stained glass all over the world. They didn't know the cross and the resurrection were coming. And when his family heard of it, and and literally his, his, his people in the original language, it doesn't even say family. You have to interpret the word family. It says when his people heard of it, when, when those who were his heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, these weren't, these weren't scoffers or people who hated Jesus. They liked Jesus. And you might say, well, why would they do that? Well, you say that looking back. Imagine if it was your brother who... He's 30 years old. For 30 years, he's never shown any signs that he was going to take over the world. He's just a dude, carpenter. Next thing you know, he puts down his hammer, and you can't, you can't get near him. And they're thinking, he's losing it. He's starting to believe his own press. We got to get him out of there before those people kill him. You're not some kind of American idol, dude. You're not, who do you think you are, God? <laughs> Come home. They, they did not understand his identity, and they were his closest friends in his family. They didn't know who he was. I mean, they knew who he was, because they grew up with him, but they didn't know who he was. This fulfilled the prophecies that Isaiah said in chapter 53, verse 2, when he said, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Whatever he came up like, he wasn't glowing. You know, you see those pictures of Jesus on the birthday cards, and he's, he's glowing. I have a, a granddaughter, and she's beautiful, but she doesn't glow. My, my wife glows when she looks at her, but the baby just kind of looks like a baby. And you never see gold light shooting off her head like spikes. And as a newborn, she doesn't do this. But Jesus does, and he's got these lights shooting out of his head. You ever see those pictures with light shooting out of Jesus' head? 
It's like they don't even need a light in the manger scene because Jesus' head is the light. It's art. I guess we can cut him a break. But he looked like a baby. And when he grew up, he was just a dude. So much just a dude that his own family members, who never saw him made a mistake, he never lied, he never sinned in front of them, they still didn't know who he was. People react to Jesus according to how they identify him. You react to Jesus according to how you identify him. People not in church react to him according to how they identify him, who they think he is. And his, his friends, thought, well, his, their intentions are good, but their behavior is incorrect. They're making a mistake. You do not stop Jesus from being Jesus, from doing what he's supposed to do. They were saying, you're a good man, but you're not the Messiah. Have you ever heard that before? Many people say that today. And some of them, their intentions are good. They're trying to stop you from being the weird Jesus freak that you are. They're making a mistake. It matters that you know exactly who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis would point out that, especially for Western people, people from Europe or America, it's inexcusable not to be able to identify Jesus as someone because he's the most important person in our civilization. But the plan of God saving souls depends on identifying Jesus. Let me say that another way. If you say, I want to end up in heaven, nirvana, Valhalla, whatever you want to call happiness forever and ever, and you want to do it without interacting directly with Jesus and without knowing exactly who he is, you will not do it. Because God's plan, God's doorway into everything is you identifying Jesus correctly and his own family weren't getting it right. To see Jesus rightly is to see God. Let's look at the next verse. Um, This isn't uh, another group of people come. Uh, These aren't his people. These are his enemies. Verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, which is a cool sounding name for Satan, right? Beelzebub. That's like Satan. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Look closely there. It says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Actually, Jerusalem is south, so you'd go, you'd go north to get to Galilee. But the way they always talk is you always go up to Jerusalem. It's, on a, it's high in elevation, and they, they also revere Jerusalem as the most important part of the world where the temple is. So, but, but look the fact that scribes came down from Jerusalem. These are priests, right? These are pastor types like me. Right, and, and, and we've already seen in Mark that scribes have been, and Pharisees and pastor types have been interacting with Jesus. We can assume most of them were Galileans. They were from the local synagogue. Jesus is getting so much attention now. His family's trying to pull him off the stage. And word has got all the way down to Jerusalem where all the important people live. You've got to stop this guy. There's this weirdo, whack job, itinerant, redneck, barefoot preacher with light beams shooting off his head. No, not that part. (laughs) Up in Galilee. And they sent scribes up to check him out. That that means they're worried about him. You don't don't do that otherwise. Why, Why would you make that journey? So these scribes come down from Jerusalem and they declare, well, we know how he's casting out demons and presumably how he's healing people and doing all these good deeds. Um, He has Satan inside him. 
Satan can tell Satan, his own demons, what to do anytime. So that's how he does it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, which, by the way, before getting to Jesus' answer, which is much better than mine, I can't help but think if I had a kid with a demon in him, I wouldn't care how the dude got him out. <laughs> I don't know why that's such a strong argument. But in any case, they said the worst possible thing is that Jesus is possessed of Satan. Are they identifying Jesus correctly? Here's the freaky part. They're acknowledging the miracles are real. They're not saying, he's not casting out demons. They're not saying, he isn't healing people. It's fake. It's a trick. It's like one of those sideshow evangelists and who plants people in the crowd. They're not saying that. They're acknowledging the miracles are real. <laughs> But they won't take the next logical step and say, therefore, this guy must be from God. They need an alternative explanation. Let me tell you something. People don't believe truth because it's true. They believe truth if they think it's going to benefit them. And if it doesn't, they'll look for an alternative. And these guys are looking for... This, it just blows my mind. I think if... I'm thinking, I'd like to think if I was a scribe sent from Jerusalem and I checked out Jesus healing folks and, and casting out demons, I'm like, I'm quitting the scribe business. I'm following this dude. They're like, ah, Satan, Satan. There's a book called Darwin's Black Box. It came out in the 90s. A guy named Behe, who is uh, not a Christian. I I get, I, at least he wasn't last I heard but he does believe there's a God. He's, he was like a preeminent microbiologist. He could see the smallest of smallest things, things people could never see, like microbiologists can today. And what he said was, I looked at the smallest of smallest things inside of cells and realized that within cells, things don't get simpler, they get more complex. And the most complex machines in the world that interact and interdepend on one another are, are what make up cells. And, and then he said this, I cannot imagine any way evolution could account for, for complex machines that are interdependent to just appear or to gradually appear. He says, it is unfathomable, it can't happen, therefore there must be some sort of designer, there must be some sort of God. And then he wrote the book, Darwin's Black Box. And all these people in the scientific world were just having a, just having a hissy fit. You can't say that, you're one of us. You know, don't get religion on us. And he makes his point. He says, look, if you can't... He says, no one has ever come up with a theory of evolution at the microbiological level. And that's true, by the way. And he says, and if you can't have a theory that explains it at the smallest level, any theory that explains it at any other level won't work, right? Right? So Stephen Hawking, the guy who's supposed to be the smartest man in the world, who... You know the guy I mean? The guy in the chair? How many of you know who I'm talking about? All right, so he's the smartest guy in the world. He hears about it, and do you know what he says in response to Behe in Darwin's Black Box? He says, we know there's no theory of evolution, no hypothesis that accounts for the microbiological level. But your job isn't to say that God did it. Your job as a scientist is to come up with that theory. What does that tell you? That tells you that the dude in the wheelchair is just like these scribes. He doesn't care what the truth is. You will get the truth I want to hear. He, he just doesn't believe God could have done it. 
It's your job to figure out how. He's the same guy, by the way, who recently said, in 100 years, we're all going to have to go to Mars or our planet dies. To which I think you're in moron status. I know he's the smartest guy in the world, and I'm a nobody calling him a moron, but I don't know much about the environment and global warming, but I got a feeling that in 100 years, I'd still rather be in Pennsylvania than on Mars. I could be wrong. Point is, people don't change. These guys don't want to believe in Jesus, so they misidentify him. What's Jesus going to do with this? It's always fun to see what Jesus, because he just chews folks up and spits them out when they do this. So let's look. Verse 23. He called them to him. He said, hey, scribes, come here. I love it. He ain't afraid of a fight. Come here. Hey. And he said to them in, in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand or a family, right? If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but is coming to an end. He's using a very simple logic there. He's like, Satan is oppressing people. He's possessing some. He's tempting others to do evil. And you're saying that Satan is in me and he's, and he's setting all these people free from me. So now they're no longer in my power. And he's pointing out, isn't that stupid? Can't beat that logic. He goes on, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And indeed, he may plunder his house. Now this, this parable is, is, has often been misunderstood, but it's not complex. This is a simple one. What he's saying is, the strong man is Satan. Compared to you and me, Satan is strong. If I'm going to go and take territory from him, heal people, cast out demons. I'm going to have to deal with him first because he's going to try to stop me. If you want, if, if you're going to go rob the rock, right? You're going to go rob the rock. You're going to wherever, where does he live? Hollywood, I don't know. Or I'm going to go rob him. And he wakes up and he looks me over. I'm in big trouble. I had better come up with a plan to tranquilize this beast. Big, strong dude. Tie him up or I'm not going to be able to rob him. That's a very simple idea. Jesus says, if you're going to cast out demons, you're going to have to deal with Satan. You're not Satan, but you're going to deal with him. So what's his point? He's like, I am showing you the power of God by casting out demons. Not anyone can do this. It's like Jesus, it should say in small letters when he cast out demons, don't try this at home. (laughs) Not anyone can do this. Martin Luther wrote a hymn that rightly summarizes this. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. And that's the devil. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? You can't beat the devil. (laughs) Even Charlie Daniels with a fiddle can't beat the devil. Oh, it'd be cool if he did because that's a cool song. Jesus is uniquely qualified to do the job. The whole point is this is supposed to show you 
who he is, to identify him. Who is this man on the earth that throws devils around? Uh, Here's a fill in the blank for you. Jesus is the only man, just to summarize it, who has ever lived who's stronger than Satan. He has no problem overcoming him. He simply binds him up, plunders away what he's stolen. Satan is made weak in the presence of Jesus. I'd like to move on. I don't like talking about Satan. He's a scurvy little gutter snipe, but I do think we can easily get confused on passages like this, so I I want to spend just a little bit more time here. When, When I had little children so, so long ago, if they ever were scared of Satan, I'd tell them, don't be. You never have to be afraid of him. Why? Because Jesus is in your heart, and you can't mess with Jesus. That truth is is how we get our protection from him. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to ask God to protect us from Satan. So you should, in your regular prayer life, involve the enemy. God, protect me from the evil one in any endeavor. What do you think the prayer, lead us not into temptation, is about? That is a spiritual warfare prayer. People with good hearts, with a desire to do good, and it seemed to come out in the 80s, started a practice of teaching people to bind Satan based on this text. To actually say while praying, Satan, I bind you. Spirit of division, I bind you. I bind the demons. Don't do that. This is the text that comes from, and you can see it's misappropriated. That's not the point of this text. You can't handle the devil. The other difficulty is you can't see the spiritual realm. So you don't know who you're talking to. You may be saying, I'm binding Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not God. He's, he might not even be in the room. Now you're talking to him. Are you calling him? You're not to bind Satan. God does that. Look, I want to show you in, in, in Jude, this is not an old, this is not a new problem. This is an old problem. All the way back in the book of Jude in the Bible, look in verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position, those are demons of authority, but left their proper dwelling... God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Yet, I'm jumping to verse 8. In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. He's literally saying, they fight the demons themselves. And then he says this. But when the archangel Michael, archangel will be the king of the angels. By the way, you'll notice Michael is also my name. Therefore, it is the coolest name. Just saying. But when the archangel, Michael, contending with the devil, one-on-one with Satan, you'd think that archangel Michael could put a whooping on Satan. He could not. He was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He didn't say, I'm going to beat you up. He didn't say, I bind you, Satan. He said, the Lord rebukes you. The Lord rebukes you. 
he was careful in his language, and he can see the spiritual realm, to make sure he was saying, Jesus is going to thump your head. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. If this doesn't apply to you, you say, I have no idea what you're talking about with this binding stuff, don't worry about it. But if you've heard this, <laughs> fight by praying and asking Jesus to protect. Fight by praying the Lord's Prayer. Unless you're certain you've got a demon on your hands, don't bind anything. And then don't. Say the Lord rebukes you. And also remember that Jesus is on our side. The powerful one is on our side. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Never fear Satan. I know one thing he'd love for you to do is be afraid of him and his minion. Don't. You want to be afraid of someone? Be afraid of God who made Satan and could squish his head and will one day and drop him into hell. Awesome. You ever turn on your grill? How many of you are like me? This is going to be a subset of the people in all the campuses. A very small subset. Won't be all of us. But how many of you are like me? You love it when you turn on your grill and you hear the pop, pop, pop of exploding spiders and ants. How many of you are like me? Anybody in the room want to admit it? Okay, my own brother admitted it right there. I love that. I'm like, oh, I didn't know those ants were in there. They're just going... <laughs> At the end of the age, the Bible says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Pop, 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 pop. God has no problem with them. And he doesn't need your great strength to beat them. He protects you. All right. Jesus is going to get tougher. Let's jump back into our text. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. That sounds good. If we stop right there, that's pretty good. And whatever blasphemies they utter, blasphemies are speaking against God. All those times you use the Lord's name in vain. All those times you said God is weak or God isn't fair. Well, that's good news, right? Till this. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, one that can't be forgiven. For they were saying Jesus has an unclean spirit. We're going to have to sit on this for a minute and unpack it, all right? What is Jesus saying? First, he extends grace for blasphemy. How many of you have ever blasphemed? Don't say it out loud, because he answers all of you, whether you've realized it or not. Anytime that you've put anything between you and God, you've blasphemed. You said, he is small, and this is big. Anytime you've made an idol out of anything, (laughs) You knew the word. Anytime you've cursed God in anger because you didn't like the way your life was going. Or maybe you were just a drunken idiot and said stupid things. Well, there's grace for that. But then he says, but not towards the spirit? This is an odd thing to say. Why is that an odd thing to say? Okay, there is one God in three persons. This is what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us monotheism. There's one God, but it shows us three persons in the scripture who all have the same attributes and act and think like God. Three persons, one God. We call that the Trinity. Those listening at the time did not have a developed theology of the Trinity. So what Jesus is going to say to them right there, most of it's going over their head, but it's written down for us. 
So let's think about what he's saying. If, if I sin against the Father, am I not sinning against the Son? Say yes. Yes, of course you are. If I'm sinning against the Son, am I not sinning against the Spirit? Of course I am. If I'm sinning against this, if I blaspheme the Spirit, am I not blaspheming the Father and the Son? Or ask this another way. Is it less of a sin to insult the Father than it is the Spirit? Is he less important than the Spirit? You following me? No, of course he's not less important than the Spirit. They're equal in importance. Then how come you can forgive me for that, but not that? Isn't blaspheming one blaspheming them all? Of course it is. So what is Jesus getting at? The way we figure this out is theology. We looked at the three persons of God interact with fallen humanity in specialized ways. In other words, you interact with God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and in different ways. Whose words are we reading in the red letters of the Bible? God the Son, right? Jesus. Right? Not God the Spirit, not God the Father. Are they the same words? Yes. But God, Jesus took on flesh, had vocal cords, and he got to say them. So it's a specialized interaction you have. So what is, the, very briefly, the Father is invisible and eternal. You can't see him. You never have. But he's always existed. He created all things. He is a spirit. And that's superior to being flesh. It's not, it's not like smoke. We're the smoke. He's the real thing. He sends his son. Okay, so the second person of the Trinity, the son is also an eternal spirit who's lived forever, created all things. No one created him. And he's also invisible, but he's the invisible made visible. Though he always existed at a point in time, he took on a body that could be seen, touched, heard with physical ears that we have. He made himself small, if you will, from being God. He, he was humbled himself and took on a little physical walking clay body like we have. He was the invisible who made himself visible. Here's the important part about why identifying him matters. According to the scriptures, in seeing Jesus and in hearing Jesus, we find out what God is like. So the only way to accurately find out God is to find out Jesus. In John's gospel, there's this sentence in chapter 1, verse 18. Look at it carefully. It says this, no one has ever seen God. That means no one. That means not Muhammad. That means not Gautama Buddha. It means not, yes, you're not going to believe this one, not Oprah, not Tom Cruise, not the Pope. No one has ever seen him. He's invisible. But look what it says next. The only God, who's that? Who is at the Father's side? Who is that? We have two gods here now, don't we? No, we have one God, three persons. This is the Son. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus has seen Him. (laughs) The Son has seen Him. He knows exactly what He's like. Because He is Him. So when He takes on flesh and walks among us, Jesus makes God known. Which is why anyone who says he's a good person, but he's not, who do you think you are, God? Yeah, he is God. And if you're going to see God, you have to see Jesus. This is the claim of the scripture. Anyone who teaches the scripture and says otherwise is a liar. Jesus reveals God to us. The Bible says in this exact words, he is the image 
of the invisible God. No one's seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who, who's at his side, in his bosom, literally, his bosom buddy, he has made him known. Okay, so that's the Father and the Son. What's the Holy Spirit do? Who is God the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is invisible. He is, spirit, he is eternal. He's never been created. He created all things. His ministry among us is he glorifies the Son. Glorifies means make spectacular. All right? Makes big. It's like wearing a Sid Crosby jersey. It makes Sid big that everyone wears Crosby jerseys. The Spirit's job is he makes the Son big. He makes Jesus known. Writing this down in my words, which aren't as important, but here they are. Though we cannot see the Spirit, he convinces us that Jesus is really the Son of God. In other words, in a strange way, the man Jesus doesn't convince people that he's the Son of God. Imagine that. If you're worried about your evangelism, the man Jesus... It's the Holy Spirit working with him. Didn't Jesus once say to Peter, who do you say I am? He says, well, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And he said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, buddy. He convinces us that we're sinners, too. We like to think we're good and that we must turn to God the Father through Jesus only. That's the ministry of the Spirit. You see, when the word of God is preached, when someone tells you about Jesus Christ and what he did and the the words of the book... The Spirit of God invisibly attends and convinces humans of the truth, of their sin, of His righteousness, of judgment. He, the Spirit of God shows up and says it's true. I remember once walking on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, very lost. In fact, so lost what I was doing on the boardwalk with a bunch of recalcitrant teenagers was looking for someplace to buy pot. And some freaky Jesus freak with long hair walked right up to us and started to talk gospel things to us. And a couple of the other idiots, I was one of the idiots, so I'm not judging them, we were all idiots, with me, wanted to beat him up. But as I listened to him, something grabbed me, and I thought, no, don't beat this guy up. <laughs> and I stopped him, stop it, leave him alone, he hasn't got pot. <laughs> He's eyeing something else, he's a freak. What was making me, something about him just grabbed me. Uh, two years later. I would become a freak like him without the hair. That was much long hair. I had, well, it doesn't matter really, does it? No. No one believes God because they're convinced by a great argument. Now, great arguments need to be there. We have to have a faith that's based on truth that stands up in the real world. And we do. C.S. Lewis uh, once said something like, um, I believe in the truth of Christianity like I believe in the sun coming up. It's not just because I can see the sun, but because of by it, I can see everything else. If you become a Christian, you realize everything kind of falls into place, doesn't it? You're like, oh, now I understand why man kills everybody all the time. The Bible said he would. <laughs> I get it now. But I guarantee you, no, no one ever, though the arguments need to be there, that's not what convinces anybody. Because people believe the truth they want to believe. I just heard Charles Colson on a, on a recording, the late Charles Colson, saying the reason he came to Christ, he said someone gave him a book when he was uh, uh, working in Washington by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And he said as a lawyer, he read it, he found the truth compelling, and he would give his life to Christ. And I know what he meant, but it 
close to him sounding like C.S. Lewis convinced him, and I would say C.S. Lewis didn't convince him or anybody else because lots of skeptics have read that book and don't believe. It was the Holy Spirit talked to Charles Colson and said this is true. And if you're a Christian, why do you believe it's true? You may give me all the apologetic answers you want, but I bet you learned all of them after you became a Christian. You, you believe it because the Holy Spirit told you. The invisible Holy Spirit. Jesus taught his apostles about the works of the Holy Spirit before he left them. The night he would be arrested, before that happened, he said this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage, I go away. I'd be like, no, it's never to your advantage, my advantage. Jesus, stay here, do miracles, let me stand next to you. He goes, no, but if I go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, if I don't go away, he ain't, isn't going to come to you. But if I go away, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You declare Jesus, people know deep down in their hearts because the Holy Spirit's telling them, they're sinners, they need to be saved. Judgment day is coming. There will be justice on the earth. All wrongs will be righted. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truths, he says to the twelve. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. After the resurrection, the apostles moved in the power of the Word and the Spirit, and the two always go together. There are some people who say, well, you got the Bible, I got the Holy Spirit. He gives me new words. I don't want your new words. The Bible always moves in the Word of the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit with that Word. I want to be clear here. The human mind is not capable of believing in Jesus The human mind is not capable of of bowing its knee to Christ. This is what the scriptures teach us. The human mind is twisted. It is futile. Left to its own devices, it will just look at history. I won't even finish the sentence. So don't, if you say, well, I'm a Christian, I must be smart. You're just as big a knucklehead as everybody else, as Napoleon. You're just as big a knucklehead. The reason you believe is because God did something to your brain. He did something to you. you. The whole point of being fallen means we hate God. We, re, we rebel. Let's say it that way. You say do it, I say no. Just like little kids. I can't convince you that Jesus is Lord. But I know this, if I tell you about it, and you will listen to the Holy Spirit, and you believe, you'll be born again. Depends on him, not me. Okay, with this in mind, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, if the Holy Spirit is telling me the truth of Christ, and I tell him, go away, I don't want to hear it. Because I like my life the way it is. Am I not calling him a liar? Am I not saying that's not true because I don't want it to be true? Am I not calling him evil? Well, if I live my life calling the Holy Spirit's testimony evil and I die, how am I going to get to heaven? It's not that a blaspheming him is worse than blaspheming the Son. It isn't. But I can't get to the Son if I call the Holy Spirit a liar. And so I die in my sins. Do you follow? You follow the logic? If a person continually rejects the truth, he's calling the spirit evil and there's no hope. 
How can you be saved if you won't believe? How can you be saved if you won't trust that God likes you and he died for you and he sent his son for you? By the way, one last word on this. Many Christians fear that they had a slip of the tongue accidentally blaspheming the Holy Spirit and they're lost forever. And I'm not kidding. That's not anything to laugh at either. It really happens. Anxiety gets to them and it turns over in their head. I, 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 I must have blasphemed. I must have committed the unforgivable sin. And I'm sure if I asked, and I won't, people to raise their hands, people in this room have, have dealt with that. Listen, don't deal with that. That's just misusing this text. To fear that you committed the blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and therefore you're going to go to hell means you're afraid you're going to go to hell because you believe Jesus, which is a contradiction. The people who fear that aren't the ones. If you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you don't give a dang about such questions. It, it, it isn't going to bother you at all. You're going to like, kill me, I don't care. I'm not afraid of no God. Your struggle proves you believe. Satan just likes to beat on you. The good news is, when I got saved, who's who gets the glory? God. Think about that. When a person comes to that moment of decision where they decide Christ, let's say they do it in a Billy Graham crusade. And Billy gets up there and he says, you know you need Jesus, brother, and come on down. Your friends will wait for you. And just as I am without one plea, which is the only official song you can get saved to, apparently. And <laughs> some guy's sitting there and he's sweating. He's thinking, man, I've heard this before, but for some reason now I, I know it's... He gets up and he walks forward and his life has changed forever. Like Louis Zamperini from that one book about, what's that book called? It crashed in the ocean? Unbroken. If you, it's not in the movie. Read the end of the book. He came back with PTSD, went to Billy Graham, got saved, changed his life. Okay. When did that person begin to believe? When he got down to the front? When he was walking? What made him stand up? He already believed. What made him believe? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He heard the message, and for some reason, for the first time, even though he might have heard it before, hey, that's true. Jesus really is the Lord. His fear was, I don't, I don't want to stand up in front of all these people. If you're saved, it's to the glory of God. If right now you're saying, wait a minute, this sounds like it's true to me, don't resist the Holy Spirit. Don't resist. Christ died for your sins. He died in your place. Receive him. Let's end our text. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent and called him. This is wild to me. This should be wild to you. Anyone who knows Christian history, this should make you stand on your head. His mother and brothers are standing outside. Mary, the one who always wears blue and white hats. <laughs> you ever notice that? You ever see Mary? She's always got blue with white trim. I don't know why. It's like, I think she's a Penn State fan. And... <laughs> Mary the one in the stained glass she's outside and she's standing outside and they say get out here <laughs> presumably it's the same group of people at the beginning of the text saying you're gonna you're gonna get yourself killed and his brothers who if you believe the Roman church don't exist are standing outside 
And they, they, they can't get close. He can't eat, so they can't get close. And they said, could you send him out? And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, your mom is outside. Your brothers are outside. They're looking for you. And he answered and said, who's my mom and my brothers? Well, the lady with the blue hat. <laughs> right? Don't you recognize her? And looking about those who sat, much like I'm looking about right now, at you. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. What's he? This should make you stand on your head. What's he saying? This is my family right here. Who are they? Whoever does the will of God. Well, you're not going to do the will of God if you don't believe in him, by the way. Going to church is not going to make you a Christian. But if you get Christ, it changes your behavior. Change mine. Change mine. My family thought I was nuts. I don't, they all have their own opinions now. I don't, you can poll them. I think they're nuts, but it's a good, it's a good nuts. But it'll happen to you. If you come to know Christ, people around you will think you're nuts. You know a family by how it behaves. You know what I mean? I mean, there's always the one person who freaks out and is different than all the rest. He either makes it and everyone else is losers, or he's a loser and everyone else isn't. But for the most part, you know a family by the way they behave. Let that be a challenge to you to love harder. So that people know you are a son or a daughter of the living God. Has the Holy Spirit talked to you today? Anybody? Anybody? Is anyone in the room with me? Has the Holy Spirit talked to you today? Well, obey whatever he said from the word, okay? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.